Good morning. It is good to be here and uh, to be back, really. This is a place that holds so much uh, specialness to, to my heart, and there's so many of you who I've uh, been privileged to get to know at least a bit, um, and it's just an honor to be back, and it's so good to have some, some of my personal special friends that are here in Columbus uh, who've come out today to, together uh, with you uh, for this service. Just really grateful. Uh, I want to talk today about the hope equation. Uh, and I really want to uh, just focus on uh, the realities of our life. Um, because how do we find hope when life doesn't add up? That's really the question, right? And, and I'm just going to say right up front, you probably know that at some point today, I'm going to take this hope thing and I'm going to connect it with Jesus. Okay, how many, you, you like probably thought that might happen. Guilty, like that's just, that's, that's what I do when I talk about hope. But first, let me start by just saying, and, and I know I'm running a risk of uh, kind of gender stereotyping here, but let me just start by, I don't mean any disrespect, but let me start by saying, boys love to blow stuff up. I, I mean, don't we, like we just, boys just love to blow stuff up, all kinds of stuff. Like I was on YouTube this week just watching videos of boys blowing things up. I mean, furniture and shoes and, and food. Like that's a favorite thing, like blowing up food. I mean, especially right now, like Halloween just ended. What are you going to do with all those pumpkins, right? Like, like you need to do some blowing some pumpkins up. And people would say, well, why do boys love to blow things up? And the answer is obvious. It's just cool, right? That's what he said, right? It's just cool. So I actually saw a very interesting video clip. Uh, Moe's Southwest Grill. Don't know if there's any Moe's fans here or not. It's a, it's a, a restaurant uh, that, that I think have, are here in Columbus now. Moe's Southwest Grill did a video recently where they combined two of the coolest things ever in one video clip. They combined blowing stuff up in a microwave, but here's the other, in slow motion. Can't beat it. Watch this. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, free free ad for Moe's today. All right. But you, you got to watch this. This is the best. Oh, yeah. Blows the door off the microwave. <laughs> 
it's just cool to blow stuff up, right? But there's, there, there's this concept related to blowing stuff up that I want to I talk about for just a second. This, it's this word implode. You familiar with implode? Implosion? They do imploding when they drop these giant buildings like straight to the ground on purpose. They, to implode, I actually looked it up. To implode means to undergo violent compression, to collapse inward as if from external pressure, to break down or fall apart from within. And the reason I wanted to focus on this aspect of blowing things up, this imploding, is because to me that concept actually has a lot to do with internal stuff. Have you ever felt like you were close to imploding? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, have you ever just felt like if you took one more ounce of pressure inside, something was going to blow? Have you ever felt like you've just maxed out your capacity to deal with pressure? You know, my sense of the world we live in right now is that we are in a world where hope is being blown up inside of us at a staggering pace. I think we're losing hope at an alarming rate. My sense of our world today is that there's just so many different factors that are hitting this fragile economy, the jobs, our careers, the political system and our disillusionment with that terrorism and wars and all that we hear about right in front of our face all the time, diseases, cancers, natural disasters, senseless killings, especially these mass killings, addictions, cruelty, violence, hatred. It's just so much going on. And you know what's interesting about our day today? First time in human history, we have this information in front of us 24-7. Like generations previous to us heard about this stuff. They might have read newspapers. Eventually they saw it on television. We now literally carry it around with us all the time. Like in our pocket, in our hand, in front of our face. This kind of information never stops coming at us. Now social media has taken this flow of information to a whole nother level. We talk about this stuff all the time. You know, there's another aspect of, of, of this day we live in today that I think creates this internal pressure as well. We feel the information around us affecting us in so many crazy ways. We feel it in the sense of a comparison of ourselves to what's going on with other people, how we're stacking up, how many likes we got, how many people actually paid attention to what we said, how many people commented. We actually have an internalized pressure going on around us because of the simple awareness of the world that we're living in. And I think there is a constant pressure for us to keep up, to be cool, to appear together, to be in the know, to stay relevant, to be attractive and desirable, to build financial security, to buy the newest, to find ourselves, to hide our weaknesses, to avoid getting run over in the pace have you ever felt like you're just like one more ounce of pressure away from imploding? 
Brene Brown, who uh, is a, a, a sociologist, a research sociologist from the University of Houston, in a recent book, she, I think, sums it up fairly well, this whole idea of losing hope and how it's affecting us. She says these words, and I quote, We are the most, current culture right now, we are the most obese, most in debt, most medicated, and most addicted adults in human history. She says this right after she talks about all the advances that we have in our world right now. How sophisticated we are, how modernized we are, how together we are. And yet she says, we are the most obese, most in debt, most medicated, most addicted adults in human history. We are also the busiest. We take less vacation. We work longer hours. We sleep less than anyone who ever came before us. I think she's just describing our reality. You ever felt like you were an ounce away from imploding from all the pressure? Well, this whole thing really came to a head, I think, on a kind of on a national level or maybe even a global level level on August 11th of this year when Robin Williams uh, was found to have committed suicide. And I mean, this man who is uh, the icon of comedy, of playfulness, of a sense of humor, who could see something funny in everything, could also come to a place of imploding? What do we do with that? What do you do with that? You know, I have a, a, a personal connection with this. I have this up close wrestling with this deterioration of hope in my own life. See, there, there's a thread that actually goes back through my family, I have a grandfather who was institutionalized back in the 1950s. Successful businessman on the East Coast. One of the largest general tire dealers in the United States. And yet nobody knew what to do with what was going on inside of him. So they put him in an institution. They tried shock treatments on him. That was back in those days. They didn't know what depression was. They didn't know what panic attacks or anxiety were. They didn't understand it, but... It affected our family. I have an uncle in that same family line who was a successful pastor and yet came to a point in his life where he imploded and could not really deal with life and through his depression and anxiety literally went into a catatonic state and was in a hospital for months on end unable to even have basic life function. I have a cousin in that same family line who committed suicide himself several years ago. I have a dad who struggles with the same thing. And I have a me who struggles with the same thing. I know up close, real close, what the depression, the anxiety battles are about. I know what it feels like to have panic attacks. And my whole family struggles with it. My wife would tell you the same. She's here this morning. Both of my boys struggle with it. Some of you are familiar with the music career of my youngest, youngest son. His album that he just released was called Disgusting, and the album right before that was called Sick. And both Sick and Disgusting are about his internal imploding. We know what it's like. 
But I want to tell you, I have a personal conviction. I believe this with all my heart. I believe with all my heart that, and I'm convinced that hope in this culture we're in right now, that hope will be the most valuable commodity on earth for the next 20 years. I really believe that. I believe that people who have high hope capacity, those who can, who can actually build hope within them will be the most attractive, appealing, and influential people on our planet. I really do believe that. And I want to share with you this morning just some thoughts that I think are helping me to grab hold of hope. I don't feel like a real high hope capacity person. Maybe you are. Maybe just hope just works for you. It just doesn't for me like that. But I'm learning and I'm growing. I want to root this this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that's the love chapter. Most of you are very familiar with that. You probably have heard it at a recent wedding or you've read it or you were in a group where it was talked about. And it talks about the value of love and defines love and describes love and talks about love in all different ways. And then it comes to this verse at verse 13. And it says, and now after all this discussion about life and love and how it all works, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. One of the things I'm learning is that hope sits right smack between faith and love. That hope is bookended by faith and love. That faith and love actually provide the framework for hope to have any chance whatsoever. That there is no way to separate hope from faith and love. That they actually go together. I, I kind of put it for my own help in, in, an, in an equation. I'm not like one of those guys who really gets a big kick out of speakers that come in. They give you like the secret formula. You know, like especially for hope, like here's the formula for hope and go do this and say 12 of these and and and, and sprinkle, you know, nine of these and you, you, you hope will sprout and grow. Not into that, but based on first Corinthians 13, 13, here's my hope equation that faith in love. Lifts up hope. That faith in love lifts up hope, it gives hope like a buoyancy. To come up amongst the waves, amongst the storms. This is my hope equation. Now, when you see the word hope here, this is not like the wishful thinking kind of hope. There's a kind of hope that is really like a wishful thinking. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's a certain type of hope. But it's more of that, man, I really, I, 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 I hope it's sunny tomorrow. Or, or, or I hope they notice the outfit I'm wearing. Or, or I hope my boss never finds out. I hope somehow I get an A on that test, although I forgot to study. You know what I'm talking about? Like wishful thinking kind of hope. Like, like I, just, I just hope. But if you want deep hope stuff, the stuff that 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, the kind of hope that actually provides stability and solidness and firmness, the kind of hope that you can actually let your weight down on. You know what I mean? If you want that kind of hope, then this is critical. First thing you got to understand about this equation is hope can never be generated by focusing on hope. You don't just become more hopeful by declaring you're going to be more hopeful. I'm just I'm going to be more hopeful. 
I'm waking up tomorrow and I'm going to look myself in the mirror and I'm just going to say, you, Phil, you're hopeful today. Be hopeful today. And I'm just I'm just going to be hopeful. And there's kind of, kind of some of that teaching around, right? Like like you just like need to just make yourself be hopeful. But I think first Corinthians 13 would argue that hope is actually a byproduct of focusing on the right things. So I think that's really central to this equation. So let's talk about the right things. First of all, the word faith. Now, there's a kind of faith that really is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a deep rooted life invested total trust. There's a kind of faith that that uh, Andy Stanley, who, who pastors down in Atlanta, actually calls circumstantial faith. Circumstantial faith is either I will have faith if circumstances work right. That'll grow my faith, work things out, God, and I'll have bigger faith. Or it's interpreting the circumstances that are going on to see what God's doing. If I can figure out what God's doing, right? Just see what God's doing. What are you doing? God, this is really hard. But what are you doing? Just show me what you're doing. God, just show me what you're doing. And somebody helps you see what God's doing in your circumstances. Yes, I have more faith. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a faith that is actually a trust that goes way beyond the circumstances. The stuff that's going on around me. I'm talking about letting your full on weight down kind of trust. There's a common illustration that's used. It's actually a real story. Charles Blondin was uh, a tightrope walker from France. And in 1859, he was the first guy, I believe is the, if the stories are correct, who strung a rope 160 feet above the Niagara Falls and walked across the falls. And some of you know the story. There apparently is truth to the story. As the Akron Beacon Journal actually did a story on it. And Blondin apparently did this walk across the falls so easy that he did it all kinds of different ways. Blindfolded himself, walked across. Rode a bicycle? I don't know how you do that. Like actually would, would carry things, push things. And one day, as the story goes, he pushed a wheelbarrow on this rope across the falls with 350 pounds of concrete in the wheelbarrow. And I mean, people were freaking out. They didn't know they were freaking out because they didn't say that back then. But that's what they were doing. I mean, they were like screaming, yelling, whoa, like this is amazing. And as the story goes, and everything I could search to sound, I think it's a true story. Blondin actually pushed the wheelbarrow, got to the other side and said, does anybody think I can actually push a human being in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on the rope? Yes, they said, you can do it. He said, line up right here. First volunteer will go across back. Second volunteer, cross back. Crickets. <laughs> you can see circumstances play out all you want. Doesn't mean you're going to let your weight down on it. But the kind of faith, the kind of rooted faith that Corinthians is talking about is actually letting your full weight down. Then I want to talk about, let's go back to the, go to the equation next. What about love? What, what, is, what is Corinthians really referring to? Well, when Corinthians talks about love, it's really, really referring to the love of God, the character of God, that God is love. It's not just something that God decides to do on certain days when he's feeling good. It's actually who he is. And the way I like to think about it in this equation is that faith in 
God as the full reality of forgiveness and compassion and power and ultimate goodness, that that is the kind of love that Corinthians is really going after, that God literally is love. And what was interesting, Corinthians 13, 13 said, these three remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is what? The greatest of these is love. Well, of course it is. Because love is what we have to put our weight down on. It's, it is what actually has the ability to hold us. It is the power and character of God. Now, this kind of love, this kind of real oxygen for life kind of love, this kind of love that provides for you and for me, for, for us to actually have purpose and cleansing from our guilt and a fresh start and healing from the brokenness like we sung about this morning and an actual love that pays attention to your life. This was the kind of love that Jesus himself, when he walked on this earth, he actually lived within this kind of love from God his Father. And he demonstrated for us by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, what it's actually like to be on this planet living in the fullness of God's love. Now, I think there's lots of different times that this is illustrated in Jesus' life and the story in the Gospels. All throughout, how Jesus is actually seeing the world through a loved, bathed lens of God his Father. That it is just to Jesus the ultimate reality. That no matter what he sees around him, the love of God his Father, the fullness of God his Father, is evident to Jesus. And to Jesus, because of that, this world and living in this world, because it is primarily at its core about the fullness of the love of God, this world is a perfectly safe place to be. Now, we would look at it through the lenses of our eyes and we would say, whoa, 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 Jesus, a safe place to be? Like, people hate you. People are seriously plotting to do you harm. Like, one of your 12 guys is going to stab you right in the back. Like, you are going to get whipped and beaten and destroyed physically. Humiliation? Nobody has ever experienced more humiliation than what you're going to experience, Jesus. So I don't care, I mean, teach all you want to, but this whole idea of like, it's just okay for you here, not a good idea. And I think Jesus would say, I know all of that. But the ultimate reality right here in this world is the love of my father. And that's enough for me. Right in the reality. See, I think this is actually portrayed. I think Jesus actually lives out one of the probably most common sections of Scripture in all the Old Testament, the 23rd Psalm. Tom knows, I was sharing with Tom and some of the guys recently how uh, in this current season of my life, the 23rd Psalm has all of a sudden become like electric in my life. It's gotten just crazy. God is teaching me so much through it. And I think to Jesus, these, this is just the first three verses. This was his life. I think Jesus would say, although this was written through David in the Old Testament, Jesus would say, the Lord is my shepherd. 
You see, in their vernacular and in their world, the image of a shepherd was everything. The shepherd was the one who provided and protected and whose presence everything you needed was taken care of. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want is a natural byproduct of that. What that really means to the psalmist, to David, and in Jesus' life, is I don't have to live in this desperate craving kind of life. I don't have to live in the midst of that kind of want. Because the Lord is my shepherd. I, I don't have to live in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Such a fascinating image because people who actually study shepherds and sheep know that sheep finding green pasture was like everything. Like finding green pasture was it. I mean, if you found green pasture, you just, if you were a sheep, you went crazy overdosed on the green pasture. I mean, the green pasture was like it for you. Psalmist is saying that my shepherd provides so well for me that not only do I have everything I need, I can actually rest there. (laughs) What? And then he says, he leads me beside quiet waters. Did you know that sheep can't actually drink by waters where it's rushing and flowing and there's a lot of craziness going on? They get spooked. They have this high fear factor. Crazy sheep. They got to have like quiet water. And water is essential to their survival. So like, I mean, finding water was like it. And I mean, they would drink with like, Psalmist says, my shepherd actually provides so much quiet water that we could just walk along beside it. We're so well taken care of. And then the psalmist said this phrase, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. You know what I think the reality is for us as human beings in in, in 2014 is we're not very good soul people. I don't think we understand the soul anymore. I don't think it even makes much sense to us. Like, what's a soul? Soul, like what? Soul, in biblical language, the best, I think, analogy for us today is that our soul is really just your operating system. It's your internal operating system. It's your iOS. We're familiar with iOSs, right? Like, we know how they work, and we don't actually pay attention to them a lot as long as they're working right and they keep getting updated correctly, but when they don't work right... We have a serious problem because your iOS actually coordinates all the different apps, all the different parts, the different power, the juice, the electricity, puts all that together, makes it all work smoothly. And that's really what the Bible is trying to say about your soul. Your soul is to take your your mind and your emotions and your desires and your will and your body and coordinate it effectively for abundant living. But see, we're not real soul kind of people anymore. The the soul to us is not something we're very familiar with. And I think as a result, we have become weak of soul. I think we are primarily weak, shriveled soul people. And therefore, our internal operating system is not working very well. And therefore, our lives are in chaos. But the psalmist says, the shepherd restores my soul. So we go back to our equation. I think, I think faith in love lifts up this kind of hope. Soul-anchored, stabilizing strength kind of hope. The deep-rooted, life-invested, total trust in a God who is full reality of forgiveness, compassion, power, and ultimate goodness. 
offers a soul-anchored, stabilizing hope. What would it be like if we were predominantly people characterized by a soul that had order and stability and strength? What would that be like? You know, there's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. It kind of plays on this same thing, talking to this. It's this whole section talking about uh, what Jesus has done for us and how it's using a lot of Hebrew imagery and metaphor and their history. And then it pulls this phrase together. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Judah Smith, who pastors out in Seattle, did just a, an inspiring teaching I listened to recently about this concept of an anchor for the soul. You, you know what an anchor is, right? An anchor is a, a thing weighty enough that we can drop it to the bottom out of the boat with a, an attachment to the boat, and it hits the bottom, and it has so much weight that it actually keeps the boat stable no matter how crazy the storm gets. A really good anchor, storm doesn't matter. Keeps the boat stable. You know what's crazy? Hebrew says your soul needs an anchor. Your soul, your internal operating system, it needs an anchor. So I just ask, like, what's your anchor? I mean, like, for real, like, what is your anchor? Like, what thing do you really lean into? You know, I've been doing ministry for a long time. As Tom and I said, we're both just getting, what, basically what he says, we're getting really old and we've known each other for a long time. So, uh, but you know, over all these years, I, I've heard lots of different people talk about soul anchors. They didn't talk about it that way. They mostly talked about it as foundational or bedrock or something that I'm depending on. But we talk about soul, soul anchors. And I, and I think there's a certain category of people whose soul anchors would just automatically be financial security. You know, getting out of debt, getting a home, getting things lined up financially. But you know, I've got to say this morning that I just don't think it's an adequate anchor for your soul. You know, it's okay for what it is. I mean, financial security has a role to play and it's important. And I mean, go to the Dave Ramsey stuff. Get your financial life taken care of. I mean, get it straightened out. It's important, but it's not weighty enough for an anchor for your soul. It's just not. That which is, has no soul cannot help you get your soul anchored. Amen. Just reality. Some of you would say, oh, it's, it's my romantic partner, my boyfriend, girlfriend. It's just like I've got, like I got the one. I got the right one. The perfect one. The one for me. Dependable. We're there. We are, I mean, we're tied together. Some of you say, eh, for me, it's Family. It's kids. Man, I, I, I mean, I love my kids. I mean, my family. I mean, we're family. We are a family. We got each other's back. We're in this together. You know what I would say? I love, I, 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 my wife and I have been married for about 75 years now, I think, or something. I, it's like, we've been married a long time. I don't mean that bad way. But, uh, you know, we've been, I've been married a long time. I mean, I love it. It's great. I love my family. My two boys, my da- two daughters-in-law. I love my family. But you know what, friends? None of that is weighty enough for your soul to have an anchor. You see, people who need an anchor for their soul cannot ultimately provide an anchor for your soul. They just can't. Period. 
Some people say, oh, it's my friends. Like, I got a whole group of people. Like, there's a lot of weight in our friends. I got, like, a big group of friends. Some of you would say, it's my church. Uh-oh, here we go. Like, it's my church. Life Community Church is so great. I mean, they, they love God. There's, like, professional paid people to help us with our soul. I mean, it's just fantastic. The music's so inspiring. I come on Sunday morning. feels like an anchor. And, friends, I'm going to tell you, I'm all for your church. It's a great church. You got the best staff people I know of anywhere. But here's the thing. They all have souls that need anchored. And they're not even collectively weighty enough for the ultimate anchor for your soul. And the warning would be, if that's what you're trying to get from this church as the ultimate soul anchor, you will be disappointed in this church. I don't mean that because there's anything wrong with the church. I mean, I mean that because there's something wrong with how you're trying to use it. It's not meant to anchor your soul. It can help you understand how God can anchor your soul. It can encourage that. It can support that. But friends, your soul needs a weightier anchor. Some people today will say it's, it's all on you yourself like you should just like anchor your own soul i heard a guy at a a show i was at friday night like just scream this to a group of young people like take up you take charge of your own life take responsibility you he said you are your own savior and i was standing he couldn't hear me i was too far away but i wanted to go "Whoa, whoa, whoa i'm 51 i've been with me my whole life i am not a good choice to run my life I'm not weighty enough to fix my own soul problem. You know, I'm going to be honest with you, friends. Some of you would say, well, I'm just not really into the Jesus thing. Like, you know, came with some people today just because, like, we're going out to lunch afterwards. Or maybe she's really cute. She asked me to come. Like, whatever. But not really into the Jesus thing. And I, I hear you. Okay, I hear you. But let me just ask. Like, what, what is weighty enough to anchor your soul? Because I just have this crazy idea, like, what we really need is someone whose soul is already anchored, who knows our plight and our life and our condition, who comes right to where we are in the midst of our reality and says to us, I can help your soul be anchored. I just think that's what we need. I think we need deep-rooted, life-invested trust in a God who is just full reality of forgiveness and compassion and power and ultimate goodness to give us a soul-anchored, stabilizing strength. You know, I heard this a while back. I don't even know who said the word, but I caught on to it, and it meant something to me. I said, you know, that's what I want to be. I want to be a hope broker. You know, like like a stockbroker, like if you use a stockbroker, what they do is they like do all the study for you and they figure it out and they figure out your situation. They give you advice on like the best stocks. They're not like the stocks. They just point you to the stocks. Like I want to care about people and love people enough and know enough about their life to help point them to hope. I'm not the hope. Tom's not the hope. Jesus 
shows us the hope. It's his life rooted in a father who has everything you could need no matter what your reality is really like. On that you can stand, my friends. On that you can be anchored. Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like for Dan and the the guys to come back up. We're going to do a song here uh, at the end. And you know, First Peter chapter three verse fifteen says, "In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord." And then, and then Peter says this: "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the hope that is within you." Like Peter had this idea that like hope would be so electric in you, would be so alive, would be so visible would be so obvious that people would actually want to know like what your hope deal is. Like, where does your hope come from? And I just dream of a day when we could have an increasing army of people who would stand up in this generation right now and who would say, I know how hope works. Hope is trust in the ultimate goodness of God, in all storms, at all times. Maybe you'd be one of those people. Maybe you'd be one of those people that would say, I would love to grow in hope, Phil, and I would love to offer hope to people who are losing theirs. And if that's true, friends, we need you bad right now. The game is on. And we need you. So we're going to sing this song. I think you're, if you've been around this church for a while, you're probably familiar with the song. It's, it, it has some lines like this. It says, I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrender. All I am is yours. That's a foundational, concrete, declarative statement for those who understand what their soul anchor is. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe this this morning needs to be the day that you say, Jesus, I need you because my soul anchors stink. (laughs) Or maybe you're here today and you love Jesus and you're walking with him, but today you've seen hope sliding away a bit and you want to declare again today that My faith and trust is in the ultimate love and goodness of God and His power in all things. Maybe this would be a moment for you and God to have that kind of moment together. And whether you actually raise your arms or I I think that the idea is that it's a metaphor, it's an image that just says and pictures abandonment to God. So respond however you want to that.